Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, everyone. It's your journeyman entrepreneur, AJ, and I have a great episode for you today. Our guest is the CEO of Intelligent Squared US, the American Debate Series, a non-for-profit organization that addresses a fundamental problem in the US, our extreme polarization of our politics and much of our life. Their mission is to restore critical thinking, facts, reason, and civility to the American public discourse. Our guest has over 15 years of experience producing high-quality intellectual content for a range of distribution platforms. They've been named one of Crane's New York 40 Under 40 and has won so many awards that I'm just not going to list, but let's just include one like the Clarion Awards for Women in Communication. Today's conversation is guaranteed to be interesting, engaging, thought-provoking. So please... Join me in welcoming the award-winning, super talented, amazingly nice, Clea Connor. Hi, Clea. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate this. This is so great to have you. Ever since we were introduced, I've been thinking about IQ to square. Yeah, I'm going to massacre everything at this point because it's okay. Just say intelligence squared. Intelligence squared. I remember things by the URL for whatever strange reason. I've done this to other people, so I apologize. Intelligence no squared. Worries. Who cares about branding? It's all domain. <laughs> Just the value of debate in our society. So it's something I loved as a kid in debate club. So this has been fascinating researching it and looking at what you do. But before we get into that, I would really love to learn more about where you are as an entrepreneur now, because this is such a great company and such a such a great impact. How do you see yourself as an entrepreneur now? Where are you on your journey? AJ, thank you so much for having me. I love your program, learn a lot from it. In terms of my journey uh, as an entrepreneur, I would say I feel like I'm somehow at the beginning and I'm 20 years in. And I attribute that to feeling like I always need to learn something new, try something new, innovate even something I've done before. And so there's always something fresh on my mind. And I think it's part of the challenge for entrepreneurs to stick to one path and follow it, which I've been doing for 10 years. But even in this role with Intelligence Squared, a debate series, it does feel like I'm cycling through something new because this moment in time changes and this moment in history changes and our mission has to adapt to that. So I would say I'm, I'm 20 years into the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. Very cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The beginner's mind is always, oh yeah, this practice of trying to do that. And I feel like it's the hardest thing because half the time it's like, oh, I know this. Yeah, that makes it a little easier. And then half the time it's, no, I think I know this, <laughs> but it's actually slightly different. So yeah, keeping the beginner mind is such a great skill. That is very cool. And with this moment to bring in here, maybe we can jump into that because I feel like the mess of Intelligence Square is 
Something that I think many of us feel is missing, listening to the other side. There's so much about the idea that we are happier when we talk to strangers, when you learn something you didn't know, or you understand someone's opinion doesn't mean you need to actually share it. But just by understanding some of the empathy for it, it helps. It used to be my understanding of what it was to be a well-rounded person but that's gone, (laughs) or I feel it's gone. So maybe a little bit about what you're doing leading Intelligence Square into this into the battlefield of yes. civility. <laughs> that's you a good way to, that's, that's an app, no, that's an app description considering yeah. we did just have a, this year, the first insurrection on our nation's capital. So it actually is a battlefield now. I heard about that. Yeah. There was a couple of news cycles. Yeah. Minor detail. Where do you begin? Maybe I'll just tell, talk a little bit about intelligence and give you the lay of the land. Intelligence Squared is America's premier, but but really only dedicated nonpartisan debate series. So our goal is really to bring two sides together for a, a competition of ideas. And we feel that the debate format accomplishes that best versus a panel discussion or a conversation or something like that. Debate is a focused way of comparing and contrasting disagreement. It forces you to listen to the other side uninterrupted for opening remarks and closing remarks. And it's moderated, at least in our program, it's an Oxford-style debate is how we actually launched. It's moderated in such a way that's really giving equal time to both sides and equal opportunity for both sides to engage with something they disagree with. And we're always doing this with a focus on being civil and respectful and remembering that we can disagree without being disagreeable. And this, we launched this company when cable news became really popular, when the 24-7 news cycle was coming of age, where you started to see your Fox News and your MSNBC and your cable news hosts creating what we now know, say, echo chambers where you could self-select to only hear what you agree with and really not have to hear that stuff that you disagree with that maybe rises, makes your blood pressure go up. And our founder, who I've been working with, like I said, for over 10 years, is a financier and philanthropist and attended a debate actually in London where there's still a very, it's, it's a thriving debate culture. It's like you practically come out of the womb debating. It's just considered part of discourse. It's just part of the process of learning. It's part of the process of deliberating and thinking about things. And he said, how do we not have this kind of uh, forum in the United States? And there was no debate series. There was no actual live. There's TV shows. There's firing line. Sure. There's a lot of, there's a an established culture of that, but no actual live forum where you're hearing now what are two very contentious sides take on the issues of the day. So he created as Intelligence Squared here in the U.S. Yeah, because it's funny as you're saying that because it did disappear. And I remember, what was it, about the time when Jon Stewart destroyed what had been... <laughs> no, it was that was later. He did that. But no, it was the CNN point counterpoint that had started off with decent journalist, but it moved to the guy who's now on a Fox, the guy who's now the main, their news, their late night guy, the guy who, oh, everyone is hating, but whatever. 
Yeah. John Stewart went on. Yeah. And it had been a show that had been debate, but then in the search of ratings, it had gotten to be this game of shouting. Mm -hmm. So for you guys bringing this together, do you feel that both voices, because debate, do you feel, especially in this moment coming, that we watched presidential debates that easy to pick on one side when you're there, but they were at least the last two cycles, if not multiple, lack of structure and a lot of over yelling and stuff. How is it to find people who will stick to a structure? Because you do offer equal sides and going through the Republican Party, the soul of the party, you know, has the Republican Party lost its way is a great example of two sides. Right. right. Know, little wackiness, but definitely well-spoken on either side. Is this difficult to find people who are willing to stick to the structure, even though they have freedom of opinion throughout? No. And the the reason is, it's uh, unlike the presidential debates, which are a dog and pony show. For sure ratings, but also the mandate of those debates is to get as much information out to the public as possible, because they have three. Three debates to get to know where these two candidates disagree, where they really stand on issues. Versus what we're doing is saying, here's a sharply framed resolution, yes or no to this question. So by the Oxford style format really prevents people from going off the rails and being able to hijack a conversation and being able to give an evasive answer and then take it somewhere that they want to go. Because ultimately, you're not going to win the debate that way. In our debates, they're also the audience is the judge and jury. You're casting a vote before you've heard any arguments at all. You're hearing the conversation, and then you're casting a vote at the end. And for us, it's the side that influences public opinion. It's the side that changes the most minds that's declared the winner of the debate. So, you know, with a presidential debate, you have a lot of punditry. You have both sides saying their guy won, maybe some highlights of the debate. You can get away with lying during a presidential debate. Facts, there's facts on both sides that can be weaponized to prove a point. In, in an Oxford-style debate, it's much more difficult to pull that kind of uh, act. Say we do a debate on genetically modified food, which people have an a immediate reaction to, GMOs. And we say, should we genetically modify food? Yes or no. You're keeping the conversation so focused and structured with the framing of the resolution. And it's not a question. It's not an open-ended thing. It's a yes or no to this statement. So if we could think about discourse in, in that way, it changes it from being, hey, let's just talk about immigration policy. And 15 minutes later, we're all still confused about where people stand or even what's happening versus we should let undocumented immigrants into America, yes or no. Explain that position. It's a significant difference just in the way that you're framing the argument. It feels where you're putting out there, the ex not the extremes, but two broad positions of because you limit in within that structure, it's like all of a sudden, it's, if you would allow legal immigration, this is the reason. These are the things you would expect or want. Then the follow-up conversations would go deep or potentially allow for a deeper dance of what then are they, if this is such a negative, where would be less negative? And I hmm. think that's an interesting thing coming out of having watched a couple of was like, okay, where would I take a step one way or another, or what do I expect? Because I think we all start from either good faith, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, 
How do you go about amplifying the, the messages that are when you have these debates and you're trying to bring them to these large audience? Because I did notice there seems to be your YouTube, you have great viewerships on a lot of your YouTube videos. I've seen some significant, you have partnerships with PBS at times, but how do you go about trying to make these debates go broader and become mm -hmm. part of common discussion? Yeah, we really use distribution partners to do that. We're a very uh, lean and mean operation, so to speak. We are really six full-time employees. We have a network a significant network of really brilliant, talented contractors, editors, visual editors, designers, all of whom are helping us work toward our mission with each one of these debates. But since we are such a, a tight operation, and that's because we're a philanthropy and every dollar for us really matters and we take our donors really seriously, we leverage distribution networks and distribution partners. So we are an NPR show which is uh, National Public Radio in the U.S. We're considered a special, so that means that stations can pick us up and put us whenever they have a slot available. So it's it can be on a weekend, it can be on a weekday. Right now, actually, during the, the pandemic, our radio distribution actually increased like between 15 and 20%. We started producing new kinds of programs, turning things around that were more adjacent to the news cycle, and that was really welcomed by NPR. So now it's on, I think, over 250, maybe even 275 NPR stations across the country, which is significant. We have our podcast, AJ. Anybody can go download the podcast. We produce the podcast also with at least one different kind of media partner per month. So just this last month, it was Foreign Affairs Magazine collaborated on a debate about the UN, the merits of the UN, and really is the UN obsolete as we're here in this UNGA week when all eyes are on diplomacy in the world? What are we accomplishing? That's a debate that, that we did with Foreign Affairs. And for us too, amplification is really about capturing people when they are most open to hearing something new and when they're most interested and curious. And that's not a formula that any media company has perfected, but there's some tricks that we employ. So whether it's a major Supreme Court decision that's coming down, whether it's you know going to be earnings reports that we know that things are going to be happening, whether Biden is announcing the his new spending bill, we know that's going to be up for debate in three weeks. We know how we're going to plug into the news cycle. So that's just to, to, we'll have a combination of seeing what's happening in the world and finding a new way of engaging with people, which is what debate actually does. It's not just hearing another news story. It's having you stop for a moment and really think critically about these two sides or think critically about your own position. So it's a kind of a challenge for each one of these programs and then we just we just distribute them broadly. So you saw on social media, our website, our podcast, our radio show, and we've distributed on many different television, you know, broadcasts as well. So it can be we've had a PBS series, we've had a long-standing relationship with Bloomberg TV during the pandemic launched a cool new pilot called That's Debatable, which were virtual debates during the presidential debates, Newsy, which is a really amazing millennial focused uh, news company. We have an entire uh, a Sunday series up for debate that we've done over the years. So 
really leveraging also media partnerships to get it out there. Some of them also niche media, some things you've maybe, you know, never heard of just to introduce Oxford style debate to new audiences. So it's always part of our mission. Yeah, because that was something definitely because I sadly have forgotten almost all my debate policy, debate structure from high school. Debate <laughs> skills. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, wait, uh, what's the first part? And it's sad, but I think there is a large desire out there that lovely adulting, but even taking citizen, what is it? You know, yes, there are each side, there are extremes, but I do think many people in the middle just want to better understand in this day and age comes. But before I can go down that rabbit hole, because I know this is something always fun, you, know, you just walked us through a very lot of complex interactions as someone leading a small, tight team. You know, the degree of difficulty for an entrepreneur to do what you just described with the impact that you're having is quite hard. Could you maybe share a little bit with the audience about what has helped you? We talked about where you are and how you still feel that you're a beginner. I think many of us would feel, would love to be as skilled of a beginner, or at least with a beginner mind. I'm going to, I'm going to make this Buddhist. Why not? But, you know, as someone who's tried to do much smaller things with less of a degree and very little level of comparable success in any way, I find it fascinating because those are very complex, difficult things to do as an entrepreneur. So maybe talking a little bit about what is it that you feel has helped you grow as an entrepreneur as that, you know, piece. And, and I would then like to talk, no, here, what has helped you I, grow as an end? Or where do you think helps you do this as an entrepreneur? Oh, that that's a broader. Yeah, period. it's a really good question. So if we take the, so I get it a lot because Intelligence Squared is a bit of an anomaly. It's uh, we have this really big audience as being a very small media company. And I think what's helped me grow as an entrepreneur is really focusing on and being inspired by a mission. In this case, we we feel like we have a higher calling. And so the work that we're doing is really, this isn't about monetizing um, this content. It's not about, this isn't even about generating revenue with each of our debates or even thinking about it that way as our product. I tend to actually, if I find myself so focused just on revenue streams and monetization, I find it really devalues the work we're doing. I feel like that comes with excellent product. And that's what we've really focused on in the company. And for me, part of the growth of running a small operation and and seeing it flourish is always being open to trying, you know, new things. Now, I'm never convinced that I know best. I'm never convinced that I have the answers. Every day is a little bit different. Every single day, the appetite for what we do changes and shifts, and you have to be open to that. There's a level of experimentation that's really guided. My growth and the company's growth in this, in just to say, you have to be open to taking some risks and knowing that they're, they may not work. Most of the things we, we try 
aren't going to work, but they are teaching us something new that's going to inform us in the next step that's going to synthesize, say, I, I don't even use the word failure, I consider it learning. So it's you're learning, you're building upon something that is taking you to the next level to be able to try something new and always having just a, a spirit of experimentation about your work. I, I think that's a that's part of what's always helped me grow and be open to trying something new that eventually does work really well. And that's what you're now going to be able to carry forward. I like that concept because it's something I try, but I also find it's a difficult, and I think especially if it's not something you're familiar with when I talk with other entrepreneurs, the concept of how you bring experiments into an organization because to a certain degree, it's an art in my mind. Mm. It's knowing what feels right, what doesn't. But in looking at organizations that do have a history of experiment, successful experimentation or continuous growth, there usually is some form of structure. Do you utilize a structure to your experimentation? Is that, or is it more, okay, let's play, let's, you know, you live, obviously, you live your brand, you're in there. And is it things that are just at the back of your brain? What's your process of, go of deciding on what to experiment with? I usually start by looking at, it's actually usually data. So seeing something that, you know, seeing the numbers, AJ, it's we release a program, say something does really well, all of a sudden it has 100,000 views on YouTube and we're like, okay, what happened here? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> why, Where's the lightning? <laughs> yeah. What was, why? And sometimes it can't even, there's always an explanation, but sometimes it's like nothing that we did intentionally. So there's that kind of moment of like, how did this happen? And how do we, we replicate this success? But really it's the process is like starting with some data and saying, hey, this is telling me, like my background is in marketing, by the way. So I grew up in doing direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail marketing. And um, serious for, level marketing, yes. <laughs> yeah, back in, this is in like the early 2000s, working for BMG and Columbia House on the entertainment side. And those companies were rendered largely obsolete after the iPod came on the scene. And, uh, and all those licensing agreements and everything went the way of the dinosaur. But it, during that time, we're reaching sometimes 50 million people a month with direct mail messaging. And the idea was always incremental experimentation. And that's something I've always carried forward even into the digital world. You start out with your control, the thing that you know works really well. And then you're going, always is going to work. No matter what, I'm going to get a certain amount of response on this control package. We call it like a direct mail piece, but it could also be an e-blast. It could be anything that works for you. It could be your newsletter that always gets a certain open rate. And then trying, experimenting with a new audience that it's going to, a new subject line or a new creative and really controlling it with those three things. So if I harness that kind of experience, which I learned pretty early in my career in terms of direct-to-consumer marketing and trying to understand like why a consumer changes their behavior or what influences them to do that. And I carry that forward now. It's really the same thing. If I start with a virtual event, for us was totally new territory. We're going to try it in a way that is controlled. It's like we, we know our audience likes the format. We're going to stick to that and just see how this does looking at the data, looking at engagement, looking at feedback, 
Now we're going to start saying, hey, you know what? This worked. This didn't. Let's try something new. Let's try adding the vote this way. Let's try changing our format. So there's a lightning round that's a little faster and more engaging for digital because we saw that there was a lull at this point in the program or our completion rate is lower. So it is for me, it's very data driven. And I'm always very concerned with actual performance of our product and take that to indicate that we need to either make a change or double down on something that we try or something that's tried and true. Especially because there are social media, there's all, there are these tools and suggestions and kind of thing around soundbiting. I think it goes media in general, soundbiting, and that, you know, the gotcha moment. And this is mm-hmm. something that I've seen does very well, and yet sometimes doesn't even represent the content that's being positioned, but I do. How do you find that balancing point between what promotes and grows your show, your viewership, your reach with the message of intelligence, intelligent debate. Yeah. I think I need some. (laughs) I need to start drinking. It's, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to go to happy hour. Or you need to stop drinking. It's one of those two. I haven't started. So (laughs) this is me. This is just me. Drinking coffee. How do we circle the square that, like, the quippy soundbite, the the headline, all this headline testing everybody does now and and all of that, which is, I know, clickbait, let's just say, to get your attention. Luckily, we haven't. You know, we don't have too many challenges with that because, frankly, an Oxford-style debate resolution is pretty, can be, so provocative that both sides, because you're starting with that sharply framed resolution, both sides read it and they're like either viscerally, yes, of course, why is this a debate? Or on the other side, like, oh my God, this is just a no. I have to go in here and get involved in this. So with the positioning of your content, right? And for us, it's just really authentic. It is the debate we're doing. I'm not changing headlines, even though I will play with making something humorous, trying to reach people and engage them with a different voice or different way of thinking about it. It's ultimately that for us is an engagement tool. And so so we don't have to, yeah, it's really the framing. We don't have to pander too much to changing it. It's just the inherent in our product. But that said, I think... Still being true to having uh, substance is really important. And what you're talking about with social media, with these sound bites, like with a post and whatever, um, when we characterize it as, oh, that worked really well because like millions of people retweeted it. Yeah, but you could say like millions of people retweeted something that was misinformation. So sure, it got results in that way, but there's not, for somebody that was a very successful campaign. For the source of the misinformation, it was a successful campaign. And yeah, it did work because you got a lot of engagement. You got a lot of, you know, you made an impression in public opinion. So it actually was successful, so to speak, but not substantive and certainly not authentic and going in the wrong direction. So we're here to correct that by focusing on substance. And we actually don't even release stuff as soundbite. You know, I've done a lot of experiments where like I wouldn't just pull out one debater's quote. And the reason is that's really counterproductive for for our mission driven work. It's I remember doing a debate on Syrian refugees and whether there was a very specific and also the other thing about debate, AJ, you need something specific. It's not just should we let in Syrian refugees? Yes or no. At the time, Hillary Clinton had proposed a very specific number 
It was 100,000 Syrian refugees, if you remember. And the number was very specific for a reason. So we were debating not just yes or no to immigration policy or refugee policy. We were like, this number and how it's going to happen and why. So you immediately go into a more substantive conversation than just getting into the merits of kind of the basic arguments on both sides. This is now elevating the query. But what we did was, I learning this, it's very obvious. Anyone will say, hey, you should just separate out the two sides and put them out there on social media. And just to make prove a point, I did that with two two-minute clips. And the side that was anti-immigration went viral in a way that like, you know, it just, it got picked up. It went viral. It's like, hey, here's the arguments why we shouldn't, you know, have this. And that really undermined our work. And I ended up pulling it down because the idea was to expose both sides to arguments that they, you know, don't seem to think are, say, don't have intellectual merit. And for us, that is actually not success, which is totally counterintuitive for any other media company on planet Earth. Um, They'd be like, yay, we saw numbers. We're going to double down on this strategy. But it was in complete defiance of our mission. It actually really undermined our work. And all it did was contribute to the toxicity on both sides rather than engaging both sides. And that aha moment that we actually produce with this content, which is people walking out of a theater or being in in a chat or even being on social or whatever, saying, I didn't appreciate how complicated this issue is. I really just learned a lot. 40% of the people that are watching our debates do change their mind. They actually shift their position. If you're thinking about how to influence public opinion, it really is about introducing people in this structured format to ideas and arguments that they, they didn't A, sure, understand or know, but B, appreciate the complexity of it or the the rigor behind it, the facts substantiating it. And more often than not, we hear people say, oh my God, this was actually a lot of fun. I came to this debate and I expected this to be a academic medicinal exercise. And they walk out saying, wow, I had no idea what I didn't know. I just learned so much and I'm going to rethink where I stand. Well, what and going down that rabbit hole, I think I wish I had just reread the New York Times piece two weeks ago, talking about if there were multiple political parties in the US, not just two, Mm -hmm. that the spread would be much larger, that there would be like five different clusters around it. And we think of, and then weird, and then left and far. It seems that there is this basic understanding of this is the two sides, yet when you looked at how they position the population, it was, you have a kind of a little bit of spike here. You have these weird people all the way, you're not weird. Sorry. I'm commentary. (laughs) You you have people all the way up here. You have far embedded in the, in the nook of the bottom. We can extremes on on both sides. (laughs) But that most of the population are in some spectrum where they share overlapping opinion, but partially, and maybe this is something because of how the vast majority of news, as you were talking about, is positioned around growth, this or that. You were talking about something that went viral. Facebook, it was very interesting in some of the research around anti-vaccine behavior before Facebook removed researchers' access or made it more difficult for them, for people to share their own news feeds with researchers. It was anti-vaccine 70% of all anti-vaccine information was not being shared from other Facebook people. It was being promoted by Facebook's algorithm. 
Not that I think Facebook is anti-vaccine in of itself, but I think it is right. the click. Yeah. And that that becomes a lot of fun when you are trying to create something. What I loved about this, it reminded me so much of when I was younger, I would watch, not the bot. You mentioned the debate earlier. The old guy would always, oh. you know, uh, stare at the thing and then they would have the couch, like six people around the chairs. Oh God, what was that? Um, oh, it, crossfire? Or no, there was fire, there was firing, firing, firing line? Yeah, firing line. Firing Thank line. you. Sorry, I can't. Yeah, yeah I remember <laughs> watching it. Sorry, God, crossing. Well, all right. John Stewart was the one who destroyed Crossfire when he went on and they said, well, we thought you were a comedian. We thought you'd be funny. And he said, yes, but I thought you would be news people and you guys right. are not. Right. And he, boom, gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I remember watching it young and like my grandfather, who was a Rockefellerian conservative Catholic as ever there could be, chief of surgery in a hospital, a little very well off, you know, all that. But it would always be interesting because he would be like, oh, okay, that type of style. And I have, I can't remember anything like that. And that was what I felt in watching Salute. It was like, oh, okay. I know this is there. I've seen it on more esoteric university sites. I've seen some others, but this nuanced approach in the face of fetus bright, shiny dopamine hits is an interesting moment. No, we could definitely be capitalizing more on that moment if we were to really engage those extremes and feed into them and fuel them. They're the most vocal groups in social media. You now have a platform for, say, even your progressive left or your more extreme. And they're vocal and they're good at galvanizing their, their people and amplifying their messages. So yeah, if we were to produce content for one side or the other, I think we would see far more hyper growth. And we have seen that. We have seen that. Like you do a debate on, we did a debate on the second amendment and whether or not it had outlived its usefulness. And the moment the NRA discovered we were doing that debate, we have an online poll that you can vote ahead of the debate online. And it actually, they put out in their newsletter, go vote no on this website. And it like crashed our web. This was a few years ago. And the the spirit of the debate is that now you're hearing both sides. And now we're inviting even, say, NRE members to really think about the Second Amendment, not just in a reflexive way, but in saying, hey, these are now we have to, in a debate, listen to both sides and get these arguments out there. And you can still certainly, obviously, disagree. That's the beauty of debate and the freedom on both sides, or even remaining undecided and being open-minded to hearing hearing the two and making up your mind after both arguments. But you'll see that. You'll see, like with our work, one of the ways we do amplify is reaching those really engaged, invested audiences or advocacy groups or advocacy efforts and bringing everybody to the table and having a real debate about it and not pandering to one side and not doing it in a way where it loses substance. Do you feel you have to deal with one side feeling that they were picked on, triggered, picked on, et cetera, on this, that once the process happens, you have the debate, do you have situations where then you have to position things because one side is screaming bloody murder for whatever reason, left, right, or center? I think we would probably, this most media companies don't do debates. You don't see debates done the way we do them. It's 
we prevent that from happening, the format that we're producing in, or even just the spirit of agreeing to disagree. We have rules. We do a consultation with debaters ahead of time. The framing of the motion is very intentionally designed by design to make sure that both sides, whoever's proposing or defending this resolution are starting from kind of an equal place. But it really is about, I propose this idea and you now have to defend your side, AJ. So it's just a little bit less, there's less opportunity for it to say, go off the rails. We've had it happen. It is a debate when both sides are going to get really spirited. They're both invested in their, in making their argument. It's for you to decide as the audience, which one persuaded you either to change your mind or reinforce your own beliefs. That's going to happen. But we prevent it from getting ugly from the beginning in the work we do and in our mandate to restore critical thinking and facts and reason to the public square. We preempt it with a great motion language and framing and substantive research around each one of the topics and working with the debaters who are all such brilliant credentialed either academics or thinkers or policymakers. And so the whole idea is to really elevate the conversation And it's also long form. We could also grow a lot faster if we were doing one or two minute videos, but those don't have substance. And that's not part of driving the intellectual life around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure, (laughs) sure. Like some debate topics. No, you smell. Yeah, done. Cats, dogs. Yeah, (laughs) totally. There's stuff we could be doing, but it just isn't part of our, our mission. So we just keep focusing on that. And for the listeners, I think this is something to really take away. You've brought the concept of the mission. As an entrepreneur, you know, I was talking about the complexity of this. It, the concept of how you use the mission to focus what you do and how mm-hmm. things have to align with that, I think, gives you a lot of strength and flexibility to drive forward because it's limiting your, oh, yeah, we could do this, but if we do... Yeah, we're going to be over here by you know, sticking totally. to that mission. It, and that can happen. Know, yeah, That happens mission so agreement. easily, AJ. Yeah. It's, you have so many opportunities. You have so many partnerships. Everybody wants you to come do a debate here or there. Or, you know, hey, what if you changed the format and did this? What if you did a game show thing? I mean, there's like, if the influx of feedback and ideas is constant. So for me as an entrepreneur, what I say no to may be more important than what I say yes to. Not being distracted, not being you know taken into a direction where it's really not going to advance my mission. And understanding where that is, is also working with your board members and your stakeholders and hearing from your audience. If you're producing content, listening to them also is a really big part of the work. But just, you know, what I say no to, sometimes I'm like, whew, I knew that could have been, that could have taken me down a rabbit hole where I would have wasted everybody's time and the team's time and, you know, resources on something that wouldn't have actually helped us get to another level. Well, in talking about then the things that you say no to, what about looking forward? How are you defining success either for intelligence or I think more interestingly for yourself and how not just in what you're doing now, but then success as an entrepreneur moving forward. How do you look at success? I look at, I think I look at success as it's almost a quadrant for me, delivering an amazing product for my audience up here, 
there's growing the brand by all the, the data and marketing metrics that are, we would consider performance success, performance growth. There's the quality of your programming. And that's something that is so difficult to define. But as producers, we'll look at something we produced and say it even has really big numbers. We may be really unhappy with the, the quality of it, like the conversation didn't go where we'd hoped. We didn't get as, as strong a dichotomy or contrast of ideas, or maybe we found the arguments to be unsatisfying or whatever. There's reasons where, you know, for us as producers, it didn't meet our expectations of the, the quality of product that we want to have. There's almost like a grading scale with everything I produce where I'm like, is it an ABC kind of thing? I'm like rating it in that way with this, with these metrics on the bottom, right? It's the business initiatives. Did it make money? Was I able to, to secure a partnership? Like that's the, that's one, obviously a really big quadrant, but I think they're all equal. So when I think about success, trying to say, Hey, what was successful or what is success? It's nailing each one of those quadrants and saying that is, it made money, it drove revenue, it grew audience, it engaged the public, and it met my standards of very high quality work. That would be success. For me personally, it's all about the team. For me as an entrepreneur, that's the company thing As I think about a program, I think about a release or, or even monthly performance. But for me as an entrepreneur, seeing my team learn and grow and work together. That's success. I've Building met your a COO. Really... She's amazing. Yes, you have. You've met Amy Kraft. She, <laughs> she, is, is, she, ama- she is amazing. We met, we were all hanging out. AJ met you for the first time at a bar. My boyfriend's an entrepreneur. You guys go way back. And Amy and I roll in there, I think after a meeting and we all hung out and had this really great conversation of team building and about being a right hand and uh, what it means. But, you know, when I, when I go back and look at like my personal success, it was delivering expectations, exceeding expectations for our stakeholders. So the chairman of our board and our founder, his name's Robert Rosencrantz, who's also a brilliant entrepreneur. Um, and I've learned so much from him. He's you know really mentored me. And if I could attribute any, the most influential person in my life, it would definitely be him. Meeting the expectations of our board and our chairman, but then also seeing this team that you're building, and that's really what your company is, it's people, not even your product. (laughs) Seeing them really flourish and grow or be able to be really proud of everything that we did together and come away from everything we do stronger with more ideas, with more spirit and being able to trust one another more. That is, that's success because then I know that there's almost like nothing we can't try next. Like I know I'm going to throw some crazy shit at them next week. And there we're all going to say like, how do we do this as a team? How do we solve this problem? How do we make this happen? So that's a big part of it. I think, okay, maybe let's, because I am taking up a lot of your time, but I would love to talk to you more and maybe we can even dive more in with it. What is it? not team, but then also this right-hand person, because how you frame that was very interesting from having this to then the team, because yeah. throwing crazy shit at a team, it's the entrepreneurs. I've been told many times over the years since I've started companies of squirrel syndrome, <gasps> squirrel. And I think this is <laughs> say, say common. No. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I think this is 
the size of our reach could tell the level of how well we say no to things. But this is an interesting thing. I think is something I would love to hear more and learn. Getting back from the audience, we talk about growing teams. We talk about doing it. But part of the reason we do that is so you can do things. The whole point of moving from individual to group is this idea of leverage and being able to do, in my mind, cooler things. And I know it can be defined in a gazillion ways, and then you have the big companies. But it's just this idea of getting people to work together in such a way that you can do crazy shit. That will be something I use. But I love that. I, I think that would be great. <laughs> I, I I would really love to. Do. I would, yeah, I would love to. I would love to and continue this conversation. There's a, I think, a lot of you and I talked a little bit about how you you felt people had forgotten how to debate in society and that it was it's really frustrating when people don't really pursue an agree to disagree way of approaching it but i would also say if we were to to take that to this conversation as an entrepreneur debating should be a daily exercise because otherwise if you think you're right about something chances are you're not number 1 yes. <laughs> if you if you if you think you're right you either need to qualify that and get other people on your team or other people in your life to say, this is great. Not that you, you need justification for your ideas or to build something, but the idea of thinking you're right all the time can actually be a really negative thing. If you talk to, listen to a everyone from Bill Gates to a Ray Dahlia, one of the things that they both do is always expose themselves to an opposing point of view and not just to prove they're right but to challenge the reasons they're thinking that, to challenge their motivation for wanting to pursue something new, to put their own bias in check, because we all have a bias. So if there's anything I've learned from Intelligence Squared in terms of being an entrepreneur, it really is to, to with conviction, listen to another point of view and really consider it and try and understand where that side's coming from to the point that you could argue it. Because otherwise, you think you're right, you think what you're doing is right, and you're going to be closed-minded as a result of that. And without having an open mind, you cannot be an entrepreneur and build new things and really build a team where everybody's opinion and everybody's thoughts and ideas are there and considered and also built upon. There's a great quote that I've seen floating around and I cannot remember who said it, but it's don't argue with someone until you can argue their side better than they can. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, that's like, great, if, you, great. if you can't understand it, then this. All right. Thank you so Thanks, much AJ. Thank you for, for coming on. And I really, really do appreciate it. This was great and gave us a lot to think about. I think a lot of people in the audience, one, are going to be thinking about how they go about disagreeing and debating things, but also just how to stick to the mission, experimentation, the concept of it, building your team and doing cool shit. So I totally. really appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. You have a Thank wonderful you, day. Thank you. You too. That was a lot of fun. And as always, getting able to talk to someone who is that passionate and that deeply involved in something that matters to many of us in the U.S., but I think across the world about balancing opinion and being able to find the ways to bring people of differing opinions together is pretty amazing. Talking to Clay has always been an amazing experience. So everyone, spend some time thinking about the way she builds teams, what she looks for 
and how to achieve her mission with limited resources yet such a high impact. The partnerships, the distribution channels, these are things that we need to think about as entrepreneurs as we go about how we go and try and amplify our own efforts to achieve our missions. Go check out Intelligence Squared. Their debate series is pretty amazing. I've been listening to them and the updates are great. So check out the link below. And as always, please follow us on social media. We've been doing a lot of work in trying to understand other aspects of our entrepreneurial journey that are important to you in the audience. And we've had some conversations around acquisition entrepreneurship, definitely about savings, finance, etc. So please follow us down below for those lovely little links, or you can always just Google us at Beyond A Figures, but looking forward to having some cool guests coming up on the show and uh, talking some more with you. All right, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening to us and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.